Hi, this is Abby's roommate, Dwight. Sometimes Abby and her guests make references to shows they have worked on together and then just never explain what they are talking about. That does not happen in this episode. Normally, Abby gets her friends to record these little intros to fill in all that missing information, but for once, things are pretty comprehensible. This intro is actually totally unnecessary, but Abby says it just feels weird not to have it. So... Have a nice day, I guess? Okay, goodbye! Hi, and welcome to Asheville's Dramatic Breakdown. I'm your host, Abby Allman. For the past seven years or so, I've been working as a lighting designer in the big, vibrant, complicated theater scene of my hometown in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm very, very lucky that way. I love my job. In my line of work, I meet a ton of fascinating people who generate art. They're like the pipeline through which art enters the world, and I'm so interested in that process. I have a million questions for all these people, and I've never had the time or opportunity to ask them because I'm only ever around during Tech Week. Nobody can talk during Tech Week. So I made this podcast so that I can ask all the questions I want, and you get to listen while I satisfy my curiosity. My guest today is Jeff Messer. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm glad to have you here. And, and there's one lie I should point out in your opening statement. Oh, no. You were around during Tech Week of a show recently where I was also around, but because I was a writer, I was useless to everyone, and you and I actually <laughs> did have a good conversation. We did. So, yeah. That was great. <laughs> yes. That's going to feed into this conversation, which is perfect. As always, I bring favorite beverage, and you just said a weird beer. I did, I did. So I bought a beer with ingredients I didn't recognize, uh, sadachi, which we learned was a kind of fruit. I haven't kind tasted mine yet. It smells amazing. It, it does smell really good. It's got a, a nice zing to it. It's like it clearly, does. clearly the sadachi, and I, and I googled it, it's like the uh, Japanese equivalent of lime. It looks like yeah. a lime, but it, it seems to be more bitter. Yeah, it's got it's it's a little more beery. Yeah, which works really well with this. But anyway, I like it. I like it. I love it. And weird beers is just a habit I've gotten into over the years. Back in the day when I partied much more, uh, <laughs> the way you keep people from getting your beer without you knowing it out of the fridge is buy something that everyone will go, "What is that?" Yes, and they'll leave it alone. Yes, yeah. I used to do that with sour ales. Oh, nobody yes. but me likes sour ales. And now I've gotten all my friends into sour ales. Now you have to try something now new. Now I've got to figure yeah. out something else. Yeah. Such what is life, do? especially in one of the beer cities of the world. Yes. Asheville. So. Yes. So I'm really excited to have you on here because you're uh, an actor, director, writer. But you're also a reviewer. Correct. You've reviewed just about every show I've ever done. Oh, wow. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> been I guess. around a lot longer than me. I'm sorry if, if uh, the comments uh, for the lighting design don't always make it into the articles. People give me grief all the time, and I'm like, they, they give me 500 words, and I usually submit right. about seven. Well, that's how it, I know I did a good it, job, is if I don't hear anything about no it. No complaints. No yeah. complaints. So if anybody has a sort of broad view of Asheville Theater, I imagine it would be you. It Yeah, you know, it's interesting because... Before before I started doing the reviews, I, I worked in a lot of different theaters, but not at every theater. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of backdoored my way into the reviews when I had my own radio show back in uh, starting in 2013. Mm -hmm. And every week we would have members of the Mountain Express come on on Wednesdays to talk about the new issue of the Mountain Express. You know, reporters and people who had articles in in the paper that week. 
And it was a regular feature on my radio show every Wednesday afternoon. And at some point during the, the conversation, uh, walking them out at the end of the hour and, and chatting with them, I got to know a couple of the reporters really well, uh, David Forbes and Jake Frankel. Uh, and, you know, I said to them both, I was like, why doesn't The Express do theater reviews anymore? And they said, well, you know, I'm not really sure, but we'll ask. We'll kind of ask and see. And they had just shied away from it in recent years at that point, uh, because I don't think they had anyone expressing an interest necessarily in doing theater reviews. And the next time I talked to them, they, they mentioned it to me and they said, well, you know, there just hasn't been anybody step forward and, and show interest in it. And it doesn't pay that grade. And, and so they were trying to discourage me a little bit. And I said, well, look, you know, I, I think it's important that we cover theater and, uh, you know, tell the, tell the editor, Allie Marshall, I said, tell her, I'll, I'll do it. And I don't even care if I get paid. I just want to help support the theater. And I had been bringing a lot of theater talk onto my radio show and, and really trying to draw a bigger focus on, on the arts, you know, the cultural arts of Asheville, as well as the politics and, and the beer, of course. Sure. But, um, you know, a couple of months of kind of going back and forth. And then they, and then they were like, yes, absolutely. We'll have you review. And it's, the first thing they said was, you know, we don't have room in print to run the reviews. And also, well, our print deadline at that point, their print deadline was 10 days out from the issue of the paper. And if a show was running two or three weekends, you were getting a review right before you closed. Right. Because of the way it fell. And, and technology so has much. changed now. They can actually review a show on Friday, submit it on Sunday, and it's in print on Wednesday. So as technology advanced, they got better at it. Yeah. But initially, you know, only six years ago at this point, they were, uh, they were kind of reluctant because they're like, well, we, don't, we can't really serve the theater community well with reviews. But and sort of apologetically, they said, we could do it online only if you were interested in doing it. It wouldn't be in print, but it would be within a couple of days of the show opening. Yeah. And I was like, my God, that's even better for the theaters. I was like, I don't care about print. Let's let's just get this out there. And so I, I started out doing three or four reviews a month with different theaters, and we tried to spread it around. Uh, so a lot of theaters are like, oh, why didn't you come see our next show? It's like, well, we're trying to make sure everybody gets covered, and we don't want to have three magnetic reviews in a row or three ACT reviews in a right. row because then other people are going to go, hey, what about me? So we, we really had to navigate that a good bit. But now, as of about a year ago, when they, you know, they got to the point that they could actually get it in print the next issue, they've got three or four other people who do reviews now, and there always is a theater review every Wednesday in print. Now, yeah. and, and I mean, I'm not trying to take credit for anything, but it, was just, it just took me kind of being a squeaky wheel saying, let's yes. do this, let's do this, let's do this. And I think in 20... 2016, maybe, uh, it was uh, in the Best of the Mountain Express, where I, I had been placing in the radio category, uh, my theater reviews was in the top three, one of those I years. And, and I think that made them kind of go, okay, this clearly is something that we need to expand on, and they have. So it's funny, I get to review less now than I did before, because more people are doing theater reviews. But right. also, since leaving radio, I've been doing more theater myself. And so it's I'm trying to navigate this this narrow passage of I don't want there to seem to be conflict of interest with yes. me as a participant in the theater community. And so I tend to now work with a lot of different theater companies 
which came to pass because as I was reviewing their shows and interviewing them on my radio show, I got to be friends with everybody. And as soon as my radio, radio show ended about a year ago, I was besieged with people from all these different theaters going, hey, come and do something with us. Come and do something with us. And so, you know, it paid off in, in that regard. Absolutely. You know? But uh, to get back to your original point. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> yes, Whatever that was. <clears throat> Long-winded. Um, I used to talk on live radio for three hours a day, so I can, I can go and go and go. It's like That's the Energizer fantastic. Bunny. Uh, but uh, your original point was something to do with uh, having a pretty good knowledge of the theaters in this region. And, and I, I discovered something within six months of writing reviews because I had at that point been to every theater essentially, in western North Carolina, from Hart to Parkway Playhouse to Sart to Flat Rock to the Hendersonville Community Theater to Different Strokes to NC Stage to ACT, you name it. Yeah, everywhere. And because I, I understand and I know theater, I can view it from a place of, of understanding and knowledge. As with anybody who's involved in theater, it can be hard to watch shows, especially when they're poorly done. Right. Because yeah. you see the seams because you know what to look for. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to just be objective and, and just be entertained. And so over the course of the time that I was visiting all these theaters, I discovered what every theater did best and what Ooh. every theater did worst and could compare the two. And I'll, and I'll give a really nice example. Asheville Community Theater has the most superior uh, sound design of, of any theater in the region. And if you see a musical at Asheville Community Theater, it's perfect. The sound is equally balanced and it's perfect. And Flat Rock also has that kind of capability where they are. And I thought, well, it's, it's interesting because now I get to see how the leadership of each theater prioritizes what's most important to them as far as presenting to their audience goes. So these are probably people who have a background in sound. Or, or they, or in Nashville Community Theater's case, they, they just realized it was vital and important, and they, they right. paid, and it was expensive, and they paid a lot of money to you know, wire the place and to get a professional sound engineer to come in. Other theaters don't necessarily have expendable money, so they put sure. the money elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So other aspects of those theaters, you kind of go, whoa, look at that, that's awesome. Uh, scenic design, like the painted scenic backdrops that Hart uses in Waynesville have, for almost 20 years, been so far beyond so what other theaters do. And they've, yeah. they've made a name for themselves by doing that. And then you go to ACT, and they are restricted because they don't have a fly system in their theater. Although Jillian at ACT is a genius at building oh sets and making yeah. that work on that stage. And then you know I see that, and I go, whoa, this is incredible. I saw Young Frankenstein when they did it a few years ago, and it actually helped me. There was a play that I had started writing over a decade ago that required so much technical you know technical zing with the set how does how does it work it was um, a, an adventure horror thing dealing with a mummy's tomb a mummy's curse and all this stuff and so the the entire second act is descending into the tomb and all of the traps and all of the Indiana Jones style things that go oh, on. Oh, that sounds awesome. And, and so I had written, you know, I'd written a good chunk of it. I'd outlined the whole show and then I went, oh shit, <laughs> I can't do this. I can't conceive of how to do this on stage. And as a playwright, I try to look at it and go, okay, I know all these, th these theaters now. 
Uh, I know where I can put this show or how I can design it. You know, watching a show at Montford Park made me think about how would Robin Hood work out here, and 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 yeah. now now it's happening. You can't really do blackouts out there. You can't do, that was one right. thing they talked to me about. You learn about the. It's like okay, how does it, how does this fit in this space? But when uh, Jillian did the set for Young Frankenstein at the intermission, I was just like, oh my god, I've got it. And I yeah. went back and I started working on that script again because I saw in her technical genius how I could accomplish things that I needed to accomplish as a writer. Because I, as a writer, you never want to write something that is impossible for designers to, to do. Because yes. they'll go, they'll go oh, I like the script, but it's garbage because I can't build this. And seeing that enabled me to kind of go, whoa, okay, I, I visualize now what has to happen in my show, and I know it can be done. And so it inspired me in a different way. Yeah. So that's just uh, the long and short of it. You know, I've learned now what everybody does well and what everybody does okay and what everybody sucks at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't, I won't give any examples of what everybody sucks at. Yeah. Right. But there, keep but, it positive. But yeah, it's, and, and it's not necessarily the same thing at, at each theater, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. You know, you come to expect different things and, and what, what everybody does extremely well is, is pretty amazing. And because of it, it's easy to forgive the times that they don't do things so yeah. well. But again, we see, we know how the sausage is made, and it's harder to be just an audience member. Right. Yeah. Something that people say about reviewers, they say the shady things, like those who can't do review. <laughs> but you do stuff as well. Right. So you're in it and out of it and everywhere. Yeah. Does that affect the way you write? Have, knowing how the sausage is made, I mean, and knowing these people, too. Well, when I approach reviewing, and, you know, it's interesting because there is a, a continual debate about reviews. Should we have honest reviews, or should reviews be essentially PR? And, of course, everyone who thinks they're geniuses and they do nothing wrong says all reviews should be honest. Sure. Uh, and then when they get a review that is honest and thoughtful and legit, they tend to bristle. So it becomes a, a little bit of a problem. And I've run into that a few times because I, I feel as though there's an integrity for a reviewer to, again, point out what the, the theater does well. What about the show works? Why is this show a valid thing for people to come and see? But if there is something that is glaring, I have to at least acknowledge it and I don't have to be a jerk about it, but I have to acknowledge it in a way that audiences and people who read the reviews don't read the review and then they go see the show and go, oh my God, that review is just bullshit. It was PR. It was, right. it was, you know, he didn't give us an honest shake on this. He told us to come see the show and we did and, and we felt gypped by what we read. So I have to kind of balance that out. And I, you know, I didn't say, oh, man, this show is a hot mess and it's garbage and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't. Because there were redeeming qualities. You know, if they see it and they go, oh, this show is a hot mess, and they go back and read my review, and then they go, mm, okay, well, no, that, yeah, okay, what he said was fair. Right. And that's what I strive for. Yeah. yeah. There's room for sort of forgiveness there. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. have to respect, you know, what, and I used to make this analogy with, with movies of uh, people talk about gratuitous sex and, and violence and things like that. And to some people, gratuitous is any sex and any violence. Right. But I, I always would point to something like Goodfellas, the movie Goodfellas. 
Try yeah. to try to clean that up. It stops working. It stops working. If it's true to what it is. And I think that's where, you know, being gratuitous. If it's just for shock value, you'll know it when you see it. But if it's like, if you took that out, this movie wouldn't work. I may disagree with the language and the blood and the violence, but it's authentic to yes. itself and to what it's doing. And I have to view all of the, the theaters as organizations on that similar kind of merit. This, you know, like I said, each have strengths, each have limitations. You have to go in and I think judge them based on that. Yeah. And so that's what I try to do. This is probably a, a long rabbit trail. We'll not try to spend too long. <laughs> what? On. I was already down a long how rabbit trail. <laughs> but how do you feel about trigger warnings for a show? Um, I, you know, it, it is interesting. I, I do think that in our society today, uh, and I was responsible for political commentary and all kinds of stuff like paying attention to things like the Me Too movement and what it means and the Black Lives Matter. Although I was off radio by the time the Me Too movement really happened, but during the Black Lives Matters era, I was making daily comment mm -hmm. on the Ferguson, Missouri situation as it was happening. Right. And there is a certain degree of honesty versus sensitivity that I, I think we as a society and liberals and progressives, which I count myself among more than others, are having a hard time grappling with. Because denying or deleting uncomfortable realities is a larger disservice than I think facing them is. And, and, and as far as trigger warnings go, there was a, you know, Luna Gale was a show that was at the Magnetic Theater a couple of months ago. Yeah. And was filled with things that people would find profoundly uncomfortable, but was dealt with in a way that you were taken on this journey and you're supposed to feel uncomfortable. You're supposed right. to feel the negative impact of what you're seeing in the lives of these characters. It was designed to handle those issues. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and you can't clean that up. And, and I do think, as far as trigger warnings go in theater for audiences, I do think you have to kind of be up front right now and say, hey, look, you know, this, this show contains language, violence, difficult issues and all of that stuff. I think the more upfront the producing organization is with their audience, the better. But I also think that the producing organization can't design its its way around trying not to offend certain members of the audience. You can't let the loud opposition voice in the audience, because the, the people who complain are going to be fewer, but they're going to be louder, mm -hmm. as we see in society in general. You can't let them dictate how you do things. Yeah. You know, you can't let them be the ones who just help you decide, well, we can't produce another show like that. Or, oh, next time we, we have to put out these big, massive warnings and we have to apologize because we're showing something that's uncomfortable and whatever yeah. is going on there. And so I, I think it's, it's up to the management to just be very frank and say, this show contains this, this, and this. Sensitive members of the audience should be aware of these things, but we're not going to apologize for having done it. I feel like trigger warnings actually can give you a certain amount of freedom. Yes. Because you've said before the show, yeah. look out. It's that disclaimer. And yeah. now we're rolling. It's so funny. I did, um, I did a show years ago at a theater, and uh, occasionally you know, theaters, community theaters especially, will poll the audience 
what you know, pick a play out of 20 plays that you would like to see on next season. Because you know, keeping that pulse of the audience is so important. And with with this instance, the theater solicited some of us who were the talent at the theater, give us some ideas of some plays because we need to create a list to give to the audience. Right. And I suggested One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because it was, uh, at the time, I was in my late 20s and it was a, a role that I really wanted to play. <laughs> and I suggested it and it was on the list and, of course, the audience saw it and went, that was an Academy Award winning movie when I was younger and therefore I'm checking that box. And they selected the show. And then the, the folks at the theater read the script and realized, oh, my God, the F word is in this script. And we have never uttered the F word on this stage. We've, you know, we're very worried that the audience will respond negatively to this. It was in a kind of a smaller community. And, and it was too late. You know, the overwhelming audience pick had been made. And they, had, you know, and again, even the producers, I think, had thought, oh, you know, I remember the movie. Yeah, this and then they read the play, and it was like, well, the play is a little different. from the, It's more like the book than the movie as a play. Yeah. And there was a little bit of kind of sweating it out. And, of course, I auditioned. I got cast. And at the first rehearsal, I was like, I'm not changing that line. I'm going to say it as written because they picked it. Right. It was, it was written that way for a reason. Yeah, it was written that way, and the audience said it was okay to do this play. And so the, the producer went out for his curtain speech and said, because you picked it by audience popular demand. Like, he, he, he couched it in, in so many ways he that threw on. the blame right back at them. <laughs> uh, and, and it was successful. It was hugely successful. And, you know, sometimes you have to outwit your audience's complaints. <laughs> uh, and that was one of those examples where it's like, I'm going to be upfront with you. You guys picked this. Right. Yeah, if anybody's to blame, it's you. And at the end, none of them could complain. Yeah, nobody could say anything. Yeah. And I remember uh, Of Mice and Men was a similar situation, not with an F-bomb, but with a, a GD, a lot of GDs yeah. in that play. And uh, and I played George in that production. And it was like, no, I'm not going to change those either. And it's like, well, it's Steinbeck. They, and audiences won't complain if somehow it's it's validated in their minds if it's a, a somewhere else, of some kind. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they're like, "Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that." Yeah, but it was written by John Steinbeck. It's a right. well-known piece. It's like they, dirty they jokes in Shakespeare. Yeah, like, they won't complain about won't them complain. at all. Yeah, exactly. Now, so you, we've been talking about you see a whole lot of other people's art. Mm -hmm. You also make art, and I'm not as familiar with some of your writing. We just finished. Uh, Robin Hood just opened your adaptation of Robin Hood. Yes, yes. Which was cool and a lot of fun. <laughs> and is doing incredibly well. Like, it's insane yeah. how well it's been received. I mean, it, it's always well received because it has that classic, you know, everybody knows it and it's family friendly. But, but yeah, it uh, has broken all kinds of box office and attendance records in Monford Park players 40, what, six, seven, eight years of existence. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. But I, I, I worked with another writer on that. Like, we collaborated on that. Yeah. Which was oh, oh, over 18 years ago at this point when it was first produced. And now it's finally outdoors. And uh, it's pretty magical to sort of see that. And watching the show, it kind of seems like it comes from this place of fun and enthusiasm. Sure. I tell you, with uh, the guy that I wrote it with, we got together and we were talking about collaborating. He, and, uh, he was a musician primarily when I met him, uh, you know, 25 years ago. 
And it was like, oh, we should work on something together. And we both met doing community theater, you know, in our younger years. It's like, let's come up with a project we can write together. And we found some things in common. We were both fans of Robin Hood and, and all that. And when we sat down to start working on it, we came to an agreement of, uh, you know, Robin Hood has informed so many other types of stories and other characters over generations. You know, the Arthurian legend, the Robin Hood. There are certain things that yeah. still are the influence for comic book superheroes and, and even science fiction and all kinds of aspects of, of pop culture. And uh, we both agreed, let's do, let's write a Robin Hood script that feels like the original Star Wars movie that we saw in theaters in 1977. I like that. That was the flavor that we went for. It's like, this is how we're going to approach this, is this needs to feel like that. And in, in doing so, you know, people would say, oh, are you guys doing men in tights? We're like, no. <laughs> right, no. Oh, and then are you doing, you know, whatever, you know, darker version? No, no. It's right. like, you know, somewhere between men in tights and Braveheart. But, you know, the idea was that Star Wars was not a kid's movie. It was an everybody movie. It worked for everybody. And it still does to this day. And it's like, can we, can we tell that kind of story? Can we make it so that it's not cheap and cheesy and silly that has some weight and some gravitas to it, but it's still fun? And that was, that was always the goal from day one. Is that usually sort of where your art comes from? Is almost fandom, it sounds like. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, my, as a kid, when I saw Star Wars, I, the first thing that I did, and, and this, you know, you're, you're much younger. So uh, this was in the late 70s. There was no you know, VHS, DVD, there was, you know, there was no home right. ownership of pop culture. In fact, pop culture did not exist in full until Star Wars. If you think about how what George Lucas did in 1977 transformed the entertainment industry and the way that people uh, consume entertainment, that's what has built what we have today. Because before that, I mean, you go back before that, what were the big, I mean, Jaws was right before that, and that was big. But right. in, in one year, that was it. You know, in 1976, Jaws. Name me another blockbuster from 1976. Nobody can do it. And now, name me movies from 2018 that were blockbusters. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, you just yeah. list. And so it, it changed. Star Wars changed the, the complete way that entertainment was was presented and I was a kid you know I was seven years old at the time and to be under the influence of that was a seductive thing but after the movie was over I, I was so inspired I was so you know seven you get enthusiastic about things easily I went home and I spent about a week writing down from memory my adaptation of Star Wars complete with illustrations mm -hmm. at the bottom of every page and it's like 30 notebook paper pages uh, one-sided not even front and back it's like, I don't know why I chose to do it that way. Not environmentally friendly, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but I adapted Star Wars so that I could have it. And it was such a quirky, weird thing to have done. And I still, to this day, have that, that copy. Suddenly, I was, I, I was feeling this awakening creatively. Like, yeah. I, I tapped into something that I couldn't really quantify as a seven-year-old. But from that point forward, everything that I saw that inspired me, I tried to find ways to, to collect it and to keep it. And, to, you know. and, and so that made me want to be a writer and that made me want to be a storyteller because I suddenly realized it, it's valid to be able to think outside of 
the, the social constructs that I was born into. And, you know, in middle school, I got into the drama club and, you know, got to perform on stage and so forth. And it just kind of built from there. I liked what you said there about uh, thinking outside of the social constructs you were born yeah. into. Because you don't notice them at first. No, it's, it's just the status quo. Yeah, you kind of have yeah. to have somebody reach in and pull you out of it yeah. before you even know the water you're swimming in. Right. I also watched, apparently, as a kid, at my grandmother's house, I watched all of the morning TV game shows that were on. And that that turned me into an obnoxious kid because I I was a sponge for, like, random knowledge, random facts, trivial kind of stuff. And, and I would mimic things that I saw on television. So even though I was born in Western North Carolina in the 1970s, I was the only member of my family that didn't have a local dialect. Because of TV? Because of TV. Almost exclusively because of TV. Because I would see things that were funny and I would mimic them. Uh, and early on as a kid, I, I got into the TV show MASH, which became the other thing that inspired me uh, creatively. Uh, between Alan Alda as a, as a performer, doing what he was doing on that show, and being so funny and so kind of up to the point of being edgy with out crossing over the edge, uh, I, would, I would mimic his delivery and some of the jokes and, and I would memorize some of the, the dialogue and some of the repartee from that show because I would watch it every afternoon. And, and it's the first time I really sort of discovered the, uh, the writer as a creative person, Larry Gelbart, who wrote and developed a lot of the early episodes of MASH, uh, became one of my favorites because like, oh, his jokes were always so on it. There's one episode in like season two of MASH that every line in the show is either a setup or a punchline. <laughs> and, and it's weird because it took me years before I recognized that. I was like, oh my God, this is a writer at the top of his form going, I'm going to tell a story in which every line is either the setup or the punchline. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. And the whole 23, 24 minutes of that episode, everything that falls, and it is genius front That's to back. That's amazing. And, and just sort of picking up on that, like without any form of proper education, being able to suss that out myself and go, that's what he's doing, it informed when I wanted to write. And when I started writing things on my own, I, I would, and early on, of course, I would like rewrite and steal bits that I saw in movies sure. or TV or so forth because I'm like, oh my God, that's so funny. And later, it, I think it helped me develop my own way of coming up with things, on, you know, but, I, yeah. but yeah, early on, you know, you, you steal a lot. Absolutely. You know, artist theft, yeah. somebody said. Yes, artist theft. <laughs> so you're very much a, a sort of sponge and then remix and then add your own yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, spin you know, on it I, it's or funny, flavor to it. It's funny, too, because there are a lot of people that I meet who are writers that I just can't, I can't get along with. Really? Because uh, there's, the stereotype of the writer is that every word is precious. Yeah. And I'm not one of those guys. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to write it, and yeah... I put a lot of value and a lot of thought into what I write, but if, you know, and it's great working in theater because if you're working on a new show in theater and you've got a cast and somebody is trying to get off book and they paraphrase one of your lines just to, you know, get through it, but and it's not that they're trying to, you know, to just destroy you the integrity of yeah, but they just say it in they're a different way. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of writers who will then just be apoplectic 
<laughs> oh my God, you're destroying my art. And instead I'll perk up and go, that was a better way of saying that. Or because he said it that way, I can rewrite the next three or four lines to reflect what I just got from this actor. Oh, I and, like that. And create a completely different tone uh, because it's better. In the moment, it's better. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm one of those people that is a writer, I, I believe in collaboration because I'm an actor and a director and I do other things too. I understand the necessity for flexibility yes. in that development process. But uh, yeah, I'm always, and, and with Robin Hood, some of the actors would come up and say, you know, in some of these scenes, you know, can I improv a line here and there in some of the fight scenes and so forth? And, and they were shocked when I would be like, yeah, just go for it. It's like, you know, you, yeah. you gotta, you, we got to fill those moments and it's got to be authentic. And that was the only note I gave them. I said, uh, just don't go too far and just make sure that it's, it's authentic to the moment. And don't try to write a new punchline or write a, a new line that is going to get you a laugh because of somebody else's line getting a laugh. It's like, you know, don't, don't, don't right. go crazy because there's, you know, that can happen. It's like, oh, you know, this, this, this line over here got such a great laugh and I just thought of a zinger that will get a second laugh that I'll get. It's like, yeah, no, run that by me first. Right. You know, don't be that creative, but it's like, it's a living, yeah, breathing thing. Don't distract thing. from the show. Right, but... right. And I, and I had that happen too. I had, um, I had a show in uh, Charleston about 10 years ago that was a uh, major experiment for me as a writer. It was uh, called This War is Live, and it was about the invasion of Iraq and embedded journalists. Oh, wow. And, and I chose to put a documentary filmmaker in as an embed with one of these, these groups. And it's all fiction, but it's based around what really happened. And uh, the, the idea of the play was written so that sometimes the audience is watching the action on the stage, and sometimes they're seeing the film file footage with the actors that are oh, on stage. Cool. So there was a film element mixed with the live element. So when the cameraman was shooting something, you would see, you know, the real footage that clearly wasn't shot on a stage. Yeah. They were shot somewhere on a location. And, and working on that, um, I didn't, as a writer, I just let it, let it go and another director did it and I showed up for, you know, dress rehearsal, essentially, mm -hmm. the first time I saw it. And there were, there were some lines and there was some crudity in it because it's war and there's a lot of, you know, and I, and I thought, well, if I'm pissing off people anyway by, <laughs> by criticizing the Iraq war, I should have, you know, uh, an encounter between the gay cameraman and one of the soldiers. So there's nudity of all varieties in the show. There's language. There's, there's blood and gore. There's violence. There's all of this. I'm like, I'm just going to throw it all in there. While I've got them pissed off, I might as well just go for broke. And so I put all of that into the show. And, I and, love that philosophy. Well, it was, it was shocking, too, watching the rehearsal and, and seeing actors, you know, taking their clothes off. And, and I felt so guilty at first. I was like, oh, my God, I wrote it on a, on a, a, a page and they're freaking doing it. Yeah. I felt like apologizing. I've put people in this situation yeah. now. But they were doing it. But there was a, a situation where some, some news reporters are, are kind of talking in a very sexist manner about a female journalist. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the run of the show, one of the guys who was in one of those roles had added too much uh. to it. It was already dirty. It was already kind of foul the way it was written. Yeah. But he chose to embellish it in ways that made the audience more uncomfortable than they would have been if he had just done it as written. Yeah. And, and, and that was one of those situations where I, when I saw, and I didn't see every performance, but I came back and saw the last performance and saw how far that actor had taken it. 
And I was like, oh, that's, that's not good. But it was too late. By the time I saw what he had done, it was like, well, this is the closing night performance. There's nothing right, there's I nothing can do can or do. say. Yeah. But I'm going to take heat from the audience for having written something that I didn't write. Yeah. That this actor is, is putting in there because he thinks it's funnier. Right. And that reflects on you. Yeah. 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 So it, it's a two-way street sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that I've kind of wondered about with writers. Uh, I've seen a lot of shows where writers are having characters say something sexist or something. Right. I know because I know them that they're doing a sort of mirror up to humanity sort of thing. Right. But sometimes audience members come away thinking that author is racist or sexist. How do you dodge that? Um, I, I think, again, that comes back to the gratuity. You know, is it gratuitous? Right. Because um, if it is, then you have a problem. Uh, and again, I, I can cite a personal example. I, I ran across, when I was writing a, a bio play about an African-American blues musician from the 20s and 30s who had worked with the Carter family. And, you know, in the late 20s and the early 30s, a black man could not be seen working openly with, with white people mm -hmm. in the South, especially. And his story was not found out until 1965 when one of the Carter family members in an interview properly credited him for having discovered all of these songs that they turned into hits. And so the show, and I had listened to these archival interview tapes that Mike Seeger had done with this, this black man in the 60s, a guy named Leslie Riddle, and listened to those stories. And, and as I was writing the play, I, I wrote, you know, as much of it as possible in his own words, in his own voice, his own from, from those interviews, right. uh, some of it verbatim. But I had to craft kind of the, the backstory because he was telling this story 30 years after it had happened. Right. And I was going to tell it, you know, from the beginning in a, in a play form. And so I had to suppose a lot of scenarios and dialogue. But I ran across one story that really spoke volumes to me about how, uh, while traveling in Georgia, uh, A.P. Carter and, and Leslie Riddle stopped to get food at this diner, this, this cafe. And, of course, the owner flat out refused to serve a black man and, and used the N-word it was quoted as having used the N-word. And this was a, right. a print interview that I found where Leslie Riddle had recounted that, you know, that he, he said, we don't serve, you know, in here. Yeah. And the, the, the turning point of that story was that in, in that moment, A.P. Carter, as a white man, could have said, well, why don't you wait outside and had lunch? But instead, Riddle recounted that Carter looked at the guy and said, then you don't serve me either. And they left. And I was like, oh, my God, that's, that has so much dramatic heft to it. That's got to be in this play. Mm -hmm. And I can't do that scene without the N-word. And, 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 and when it was performed, every time it was performed, you felt the tension in the audience to see a white actor call see a black that. man that on stage. But it was true. It was real. It was honest. And, and I think as long as it's, it's honest, you can kind of get away with it. And, and I think most audience members will look at it objectively. Mm -hmm. if, it's, of, if it's real to the plot, to, you mean. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the flip side of that is I was in a production of the Million Dollar Quartet recently, which you brilliantly lighted oh, for you. us or lit for us, I guess is the 
whatever the press. So brilliant, so brilliantly that there were, we had a fill-in one night who couldn't keep up with the the light cues. Oh, we ran the boards. Yeah, we were in funky places a few times, uh, oh, no. but uh, it was only one performance though. But in, in that show, I had as an actor, I had this really weird experience. I was playing record producer Sam Phillips, mm-hmm. who was kind of telling. You know, the story in between the songs about Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee yeah. Lewis. And I would kind of tell the audience, well, this is what happened. This is this is this and this is this. And the guy playing Carl Perkins even has a few lines where I, you know, I ask him, where did you learn to play? And he refers to, well, there was this old colored man that lived across the way from us. Yeah. And in, in one of my lines, talking about Elvis... You know, I say, you know, if I could just find uh, somebody that could light a fire under uh, under a song like those great Negro singers. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, direct quotes. Those are accurate to the time. And as an actor having to deliver it, you know, you just go up there and go, I've just got to be honest as this guy. He, right. He's not offensive and he doesn't mean it as an offensive thing when he says that. But it's a reality it, of the it's time. It's a reality of the time. And and he's saying it with all due respect, mm-hmm. but that was the terminology of the time. And audiences, and again, this goes back to the trigger trigger part of our conversation too. Right. Uh, audiences respond to things based on current political correctness and acceptance, not on historical. And theater has to navigate that. But the worst part of this experience for me was um, on the front row one night was an African American couple who had come to see the show. And, and Josh, the guy who was playing Carl Perkins, and I both, after the, at the intermission, we were backstage going, oh man, that was, that was one of the hardest things to do. That couple didn't come back after the intermission. Oh, and no. that is one of the things that haunts me still about having done that show. Out of all the great stuff that happened in that show, I, I will never forget coming back on stage for the second act and looking and seeing those two seats empty. And, and feeling as though, God, you know, I, I wish there had been a way that we could have somehow talked to them personally to, you know, to, to, you know, why didn't you come back? What's, were you offended? Because that's not what we were trying to do. You know, there was this sense of, and Josh, the guy that was playing Carl Perkins, was the same way after the show, we were both like, oh my God, they, they didn't come back. Right. Was it because of what we said as these characters that caused them to not come back? Wow. And that and that was like one of the toughest things to do for me on stage in, in, in years, you know, was to kind of realize, wow, you know, we are so sensitive as a society. There is an explanation. I'm not like that. I, you know, it's like I wasn't trying to offend you, but somehow they were still offended. I assume they were still offended. We, right. we don't know. We just don't know. They might have thought the show was over at the intermission. I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, some people do. It just depends. But yeah, yeah, it's just, it's one of those interesting things. It is tough to navigate because I, I know that when I'm working on a period show and, and things like that come up, I know that it would be just as bad to pretend things weren't that way. Right. But it does, does give me this like uncomfortable itch. Like, yeah. Uh, well, what was that? There was a show, um, a major show that got shut down because there was a... Um, a depiction of slaves working in the field and they had white actors playing the roles. Did you see that? It was like a no. couple of weeks ago. It was like some, I, I, I wish I could recall, I just remember seeing it, that the, the show got shut down because people really bristled to, 
to that yeah. visual aspect on stage. You're like working in the cotton fields and it's like, oh, the lights come up and they're white people singing about the plight of slavery and so forth. And it really offended a lot of people. Yeah. And, and it, they closed the production, whatever it was. But, but there are so many things like that where, where do you draw that line? How do you, yeah. you know, is it art, you know, or is it compromise? Why, why would you have white people playing those roles? Were you trying to make some sort of statement or were you, you know, I don't know. It's like, was it just a, a wild misstep? Or was yeah. there something you were going for? Well, I've, I've known theaters too where there were, uh, there were shows that, had, you know, this is not, not necessarily a funny story, but... Um, I know a theater that did a show that had supposedly had to have a, a, an African-American choir type chorus part to one song. And look, they just didn't did not have any African-American people auditioned in that community. No, you know, as, as hard as they tried. And so they had half a dozen white actors, very dimly lit. Oh, no. <laughs> almost almost off stage. You could just sort of see that there was somebody there and that they were singing, but you couldn't see them and you could just hear them. That's an interesting solution. Because they were so worried. They were just like, we can't just have the white people come out and sing as part of this, and we can't cut this because it's integral to the show. So they, they chose, and you would appreciate this as a lighting person, they chose to light it in a way that you couldn't tell. <laughs> so those are the compromises you make for your art, I guess. I, I guess. Yeah, and that's... That's an interesting thing, too, from the perspective of a writer. You also do acting and directing. At some right. point, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. But I love writers, and I love hearing about writers because it's, it's, you know, as an actor and as a lighting designer and as whatever, you're interpreting hmm. what is handed to you. Right. But as a writer, you're, you're where it comes from. You're creating it. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting to me because I don't do that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird mutant gene sort of thing, I think. I don't know. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's funny because ideas, can they can come from anywhere. And I used to, in my 20s, write a lot about, you know, my, my social life, sort of parodying my social life. Very much, I had a writing professor in college who was like, you're like a, a non-Jewish Woody Allen as far as your sensibilities go. Like that, that sort of self-effacing, like mocking your own deficiencies before other people can mock them, like dysfunction, relationships, and so forth. <laughs> and so in my 20s, that's, uh, basically everything I wrote was kind of in that vein because that's what was fueling me. You know, that's what's the most immediate in your life is whatever's going on. And if you can find a way to spin it into comedy or spin it into something interesting in a storytelling sense, uh, that's better and cheaper than therapy. Uh, so that, yeah. that's kind of what I did. And, and you know, it was heavily fictionalized. Like, I, I remember a guy, because when I was in college, I wrote several plays, and I had a friend of mine who was an actor, really great actor, and he was like, I want to try my hand at writing something. Can I can I bring you a few pages of, of something that, that I've got for a basis of a play, and, and, you know, let me know what you think. And he brought me this, uh, it was three or four pages of uh, a scene, a discussion between uh, a man and his grandmother who was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's and, and whatever. And, and he said, you know, write notes, be sure, you know, write notes, tell me what you think, you know, anything, just you know, mark up the pages and let me know what you think. And so I did, I went through and I looked at it and I you know, circled this and I said, move this to here. It's like, this, this doesn't seem to work here and all this stuff. 
And I gave it back to him, and I, he kind of read it, and, and he looked at it, and he had this really kind of disappointed look about him. And, and I was like, what's wrong? And he goes, he goes, well, this is, this is a true story. This, this is, I recorded a conversation I had with my grandmother. I want to write a play honoring and respecting her, and I'm trying to get her to remember details of her life. And, and you know, he said, he said, I'm kind of disappointed because th this is real. This is really what happened. Word for word, this is really what happened. And, and it was so powerful for me, and I wanted to, sh you know, put it out there and, and share it with people. And, and my advice to him, and I was still in my 20s at this point, you know, and, and only a few years older than this guy, but I had written plays. And my advice to him was, was kind of, you know, the reality of it is that when you're writing a script, even if it's coming from a place that's true emotionally, you're writing something for entertainment purposes. Uh, and that's where the craft comes in. The yeah. real life transcripts do not a great play make. But what I had done to this thing was I had cut things that she had said and suggested, hey, this thing would fit better down here as, as a response to this question you asked because it just the flow, like creating a flow. Right. And it, and it really kind of floored him because it, it disintegrated the authenticity in his mind of what had happened. And I had presented him with, this is how you well craft an emotional reaction from the audience. It's like, this might be emotionally moving for you, but for an audience, they're going to be going, mm, it's just, eh, you know, whatever. It's like, so you've got, you've got to be able to draw that line between, you know, the true emotion of whatever inspired you to write this versus cutting lines, changing things to suit an audience's desire to see something to be entertained. Come to think of it, there are things that actors do on stage that are not what normal people do, but somehow communicate the emotion better. So like if you watch Laurence Olivier being upset, normal people in the world don't make those faces <laughs> right. or those noises when they're upset. But boy, you really feel it. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, that. It's a heightened reality. And yeah. it's got, it has to be a heightened reality. As well, you have to, within the, the space that you're playing, uh, I, I did a production of the, the play Rabbit Hole, uh, about oh, 10 years one. ago. It was made into a movie with, I want to say, Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman okay. maybe six or seven years ago. Oh, uh, sparking a memory. But it's it's a real intimate play about uh, parents coming to grips with their child having been killed by a hit-and-run driver. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty hardcore stuff. And I did it in a studio setting where the audience was six feet away from you at most. Right. And it was powerful. It was gripping. It was moving. And it was immediate because it was right there. You're in the room. You're right there. You could reach out and touch them. And as an actor, I could play it in a softer way. There, there are theaters who do it in 500-seat houses where I could never have made the same choices as an actor. Because people show wouldn't been. even be able to yeah. see it. Suddenly, you're, pl you're playing to somebody who's 20 rows away, not, right. not six feet. And you, and you have to be able to adjust to that. As a performer, it's like, how, how do I fill this space and still seem authentic? And so that's, it's like this out-of-body experience with actors. I always have difficulty with, with people who are just like, you know, I'm just, I'm so method, I'm so focused in. And it's like, you got to be aware of the audience too. You know, right. you, you, it's not just about you. It's, you can't just be up here living in the moment for your own, you know, satisfaction that 
this there's a, there's an entertainment component. Right. There's a communication yeah. component that's just different. Yeah, and, and from I, the way you would normally. And, and, and when I direct, I tell people, especially if it's comedy, you know, let's say it's a five character show and it's a comedy. One of the first notes I tell them is, uh, this play has six characters, and the sixth character is not going to show up until opening night and will be a different character every night of the run because that's the audience. They're going to tell you what they think is funny. They're going to tell you how to play certain beats in this show, and you have to embrace that. I like that. You can't fight it because they'll stop investing in it. It's like they're, they're going to find different things funny every night, and it will, if you are a, an adept actor in a comedy situation, it will change the way you deliver things. It's not going to change your performance. It's not going to change the show. It's not going to rewrite everything. But the way you respond will be different. And it's all based on the energy that's in the room with the audience at the time. And so I, I've been a believer of that forever. It's like you have to be ready for that. And you, when I work with actors, when I'm on stage, I'm already in that mode. Waiting, yeah. waiting for the what are the what are they going to tell me? What is the audience telling me as an actor? Where do I go based on what they're giving me? And other actors that you're on stage with who are not prepared for that or able to do it and are trying to stick so stick adhere very closely to what they were doing struggle. Sure. Because it's like you're fighting a current. You know these people are here and they're giving you this and it's like you've got to accept it. You've got to you've got to make that a part of what you're doing. And it is different every night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. There are so many obstacles, or not obstacles, challenges that actors specifically experience that did not occur to me. <laughs> right. All the time. To, to the point, I, for the first time, was on a stage uh, to fix something and turned around and caught my own lights full in the face. Right. And was so startled. She's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I need to be so much more forgiving <laughs> when they complain about this. It, and you know, and yeah, so you, you kind of got it too, but it, you adjust to it. I, I think it becomes yeah. such a second nature, uh, the whole idea of finding your light. It's like, you know, a good actor who's aware, and it's on. it has to be a subconscious level. Like you have to get to the point where you're not actively thinking about where you're standing, how you're standing, how you're moving, that, that, that you have to, I think as an actor, you have to build that, that intuition. And if you don't, it's going to look stagey. You can't teach that, too. That's one of those things that you can't, as a, as a director, as a professor, as anybody, you can't teach somebody to, to develop that sixth sense. Like, you know, you'll see actors who, God love them, it's like they, they're... They're not in the light. Yeah. And you go, can't they feel it? Can't, right. You know, you got to know. And, and it's like as an actor, that is that part of your brain that switches on that's the, the inactive thought of you know when you're directly in the center of your light. You know when it's hot. But you're not, as the performer, actively thinking or actively right. you're aware You're not of actively it. searching for it. Yeah, yeah. Because if you start thinking, oh, where's my light, where's my light, then you're not the character anymore. Yeah. You know, you're not yeah. playing the role anymore. So it's like a, that. Like I said, the intuitive X factor is something that only the good actors have, and it's. And I think most of them do. I, I think anybody who has accomplished uh, to to any degree is accomplished at performing. Mm -hmm. You've got it because if you don't if you don't have it, I think you wind up quitting after a certain point sure. in time because it, it it's, too, it's too frustrating. It's too difficult. Yeah, you feel like there's something there's something off, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. 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 You're never fully comfortable. You're never in the role 
fully. And I, and I think the best performances are the ones where afterwards you don't remember specifically what you did on stage. Interesting. I, I think the best performance, you go, oh man, that was really good, but you don't know why. Yeah, you, know. you just got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, connection from somewhere. And and I and I think I more fully discovered that when I was doing, when I was doing radio, and then when I tried my hand and God bless you, you were here for much <laughs> of it. When I tried my hand at, next to close to very near to stand up, yes, comedy, and that having that actor's instinct really helped so much with that, because. After that first, the first show I did, that April, the first show that I did that was so wildly successful for whatever reason that I still don't understand, I remember doing it. I remember being there with the audience, I re but I don't remember how I made it work. I, you know, it's yeah. like I, I remember hearing the laughs. I remember getting the reactions. I remember the response of the audience. But for the life of me, and I'm, I'm going to eventually watch the, the video footage of it because I'm like, I need to really see this because it was as close to an out-of-body experience as possible. But for me, it was also the most nervous beforehand that I had been in years as a performer because this was outside of my safety zone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt lucky that when I walked out on stage, that, that actor's intuition kicked in. And that part of my brain engaged itself, and I just did it. It just carried, and it just and it just went. And and yeah, it's, it's like it was cool. And I think that's what most actors I think live for, is that moment. I think musicians do as well, where you're on stage and you don't remember playing the notes. You just remember being in the moment, and having that experience with the band and with the audience and with everybody that's there. And for the life of you, you, co you couldn't physically, actively recall any specific, oh, I remember when my finger slipped off the key down here. None of that. It's, it's all washed away. It's all sucked into some black hole somewhere. And those are the best. Yeah. The, I don't know why, but this was it. This was great tonight, and I can't say why. You know, the best memories for actors, the ones that get talked about at all the cast parties, are the, the near-miss experiences. And those are the ones everybody remembers because yes. <laughs> the, the, the legend is born around, oh, do you remember when that person cut three pages and made the wrong entrance and <laughs> we had to do this and we had to do this because that, that, that intuition part of your brain shuts itself off when something goes wrong. And the other part of you kicks in and you have to navigate. The fight or flight part. Yeah, yeah. You have to navigate through to the next point that you can re-engage that Right. get back on track but it's in those lost moments and how well you navigate them that makes the cast party stories nobody ever goes to a cast party and goes do you remember that night that everything went great and perfect and <laughs> no because then that's the end of the story right well tonight's show was perfect it was flawless i'll buy, buy another drink <laughs> right. and that's the end of it but oh my god you can you believe what almost happened tonight that's what everybody kind of remembers those are always so close to everybody's heart i love yeah. those stories but because of, yeah, I think it's because of that, that you know, that intuition thing. And like I said, you know, it, it when something happens, it knows when to shut off and get your regular brain involved again. Yeah. Into that fix it mode, and I think that's why you remember those moments. It sounds like driving a car. It, it totally is. Yeah. Dri you know, anything you do is that. Uh, I mean, yeah, you have. I know we all have. 
taking you know drives for hours and then go oh god i was i don't remember any of that the past 30 miles yeah but surely you do you know it's not like you you fell asleep there you were there you were watching the road you were driving and blinkers and you know turns and all of that stuff but it's such a part of that that part of your brain it's like i got this you know that's fantastic back and relax i love these conversations because i had no (laughs) idea that happens Oh, it does. It does. I, that's I, so cool. And that, that's the addictive thing. I really honestly think that it's, it's that that drives people to, to do this, to, to be a, a part of this yeah. uh, as an actor on stage. And I think as, as a director, you, you strive to get the actors to that point. And as a writer, you hope that what you've written will enable them to, to, hit, that to, to, to hit that moment, yeah, to find that, that little nirvana that they're in. And, you know, when it all works well together, it's, it's, it's a pretty magical experience. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, I, I, I could just be completely wrong. And the next person you talk to will be like, oh, that's, that's garbage. That's crap. <laughs> There's no way. It's like, I'm always aware of every moment I'm on stage. <laughs> well, whatever. Good for you. Well, that's cool, too. <laughs> yeah. Whatever works, right? Well, we're just about out of time. Oh, but... <laughs> <laughs> we wasted so much time. Oh, oh I, know. I love it. But... I had an experience with you. Oh, God. One of your reviews that actually changed the way I do lighting. Oh, no. I'm sure you didn't even know. Is that why there's a large gun lying over there? Are you about to... That is what that's for. No, no, no. I wanted to tell you I hate you. (laughs) No, I've only ever gotten... uh, Most of the time when lighting is mentioned in a a review, it's like one sentence. It's like, and the lighting was good. Something like that. And if if you've done costuming the same way, uh, props the same way sometimes set lights if yeah. you've done your job perfectly you'll never get the credit you deserve yeah because they don't notice right yeah but i did one show where i got it was death of a salesman i got lazy with the backlighting i, I had worked so hard on everything else i had gotten tired and i had gotten lazy with the backlighting and i figured no one will notice and you noticed. Oh my gosh. And put it in your review, and you were kind enough not to say my name. Oh no. In the review, you're like, that was really bad. It was really blinding. That was very frustrating. Oh gosh. And I was like, ah! And oh, read the gosh. review and immediately came back to the theater and fixed it. But after that show, I thought, okay, I gotta work harder. I gotta be cleaner. Because if nobody else, <laughs> Jeff is going to see it. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to remember now specifically, yeah. but I, that show was difficult because it was being performed in the magnetic theater. Right. And the, the limits of the staging were well beyond inches of their life as far as how the oh, set yeah. was constructed. It was tight. Uh, it, was, it was next to impossible to, to pull that show off, and, and it did and it was so exceptionally well done. I may have been stumbling for something something to say to offset <laughs> all the goodness, but no, it was, it was a really good production. I don't remember yeah. specifically having pointed that out. But. Well, that's good, but I wanted to thank you for it. Oh, well, you're, you're welcome, and I because, apologize. Because it really did it really did help me clean up, and that, that kind of ties back to what we were talking about, about honesty in, in reviews yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. You say you want honesty, but then when you get it, it's a little upsetting, but it does help you improve. It helped me improve. Well, and as long as nobody takes it as, as malicious. Absolutely. As now, there are people who will say things intentionally right. to, to be destructive, but I'm, I'm trying to be constructive in anything, oh, yeah. that, anything that I say. 
And, you know, I hope people out there always sort of realize that. And I've seen people kind of bristle before. Uh, and, and to your credit, you know, you, you've you been nothing but nice when I've been around. You're not like, oh, that <laughs> asshole, I hate him. Well, uh, I, I wouldn't, I would have felt like it was malicious if it weren't 100% correct. Right. I went back and looked at him and I was like, oh, yeah. no, I see everything he said. Oh. Uh, well, I, well I, I'm glad that I was accurate, but... Uh, that was very helpful. Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad it. that it was helpful too. I mean, that to me, that's always my goal in all of this, is you know to to elevate theater and to elevate all of the crafts people that are here that are doing it, all of the talent that are doing it, <laughs> and to, in order to kind of keep elevating it, you know, you, you sometimes have to do a reality check. Yes. On the you get like, you get too comfortable. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. And, and that happens to everybody, and myself included. You know, I, I can definitely think of times when it's easier to phone it in sometimes than it is to give and it your put all. Put in the effort. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, you have to kind of, to me, I, I, I walk away and have to remind myself. It's like, no, 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 you got to get back on track. It's like you can't, you can't get too complacent yes. uh, with this. Because every show, everything you do is, is a new challenge. And even though, I mean, you're, you're dealing with lights and people are like, well, how many possible ways are there to turn a light? And how many, you know, <laughs> sure, and sure. people who don't know don't understand the nuance that's there. And it's like I said before, you know, if you do your job perfectly, nobody will ever mention it. Yeah. Because it's seamless and it, it's, it's like they never notice because it's perfect. Yeah. And you get to the point where you love that feeling. Yeah. Where you get out and you're like, didn't even see it. That yeah. was perfect. Well, I can say this. I, I took. I was taking pictures all last week in the tech week of, of Robin Hood, and uh, your lighting out out there is amazing. And that's a whole oh, new. That's a whole new feat. Thank you. Is is lighting that stage? There's the beginning of Act Two. I took several pictures, and people were like, "Oh my God, look at that! That looks so fantastic." Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And even though the lighting is only visible for half the show right. because it's outdoors. <laughs> It's still there. I can tell people that, yeah, you've, you've lit the whole show. Oh, absolutely. And those lights are up. The sun just, could go out at any moment. That's right. And my lights will be ready. How long would it take if the sun did go out before we would all die? We could finish the show, maybe. We could finish the show. Yeah. We could yeah. get to the end of it. Yeah. Sure. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I would like to think that there's, you know, the ability to, if it happened in the middle of a show, for the actors to go, eh, hey, let's just finish. This is the last thing we'll ever do. I'm 100% sure that that's what people would try to do. Yeah. Oh, Just absolutely. finish the show. I, I knew of uh, an actress, great, great older lady actress, who uh, passed away 10, 12 years ago at this point. And she was, she was like 80 some odd years old. Mm -hmm. she, she would not stop performing. She uh, collapsed during the intermission oh, wow. of the show. And was wheeled out through the audience to a standing ovation by the 911 emergency people. The stage manager finished the performance, you know, for her on stage in the book, and uh, and she died a couple of days later in the hospital. The last thing she did was got a standing ovation as they hauled her out of the theater oh. in the middle of a performance. And I'm like, you know what? That's the way. That is a great way to go. Frankly. That's fantastic. I'm like, if only. Right. And she probably asked them as they were checking her out backstage. She was like, can you give me another hour? Right. And she, I guarantee she probably. So get through the rest of it. Yeah. Let me, let me finish this first and then I'll go. <laughs> so that, uh, to me, that's always, you know, as far as theater goes, that's one of the most inspiring things I, I can recall. 
That's like, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if only we could all go out that way. And I would like to think that the audience will be so enraptured by what they're seeing that they'll go, yeah, we'll stick it out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we really do have to stop. Okay, it is time to wrap up. Well, yes. thank you so much, Abby. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. It's a really oh, fun conversation. It's, it's my pleasure. I, I was I was told that you did a fun show and that I should come and, and do it with you, so I'm glad that oh, we got good. the opportunity to do that. I try to be fun. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Abby. Absolutely, and thank you. Yeah. Hey, thank you for joining us on Asheville's Dramatic Breakdown. If you have questions, comments, objections, suggestions, condemnations, or praise, we'd like to hear from you and hear all about them. You can contact us at AshevilleDramaticBreakdown at gmail.com or you can look us up on Facebook. That's Asheville Dramatic Breakdown. It's Asheville's. Asheville. Asheville Dramatic Breakdown. And I, I think we did, right? We, we broke it down. We broke it down. Dramatically. <laughs> this podcast is conducted, recorded, and produced by Abby Allman. Good job, Abby. Thank you. Love what you're doing. It's fantastic. Our logo was designed by Clinton Vickery. Our theme was composed and performed by Josh, Josh Stratton. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> Production assistant by Ray Stratton. Equipment provided by Kevin Amon. Thanks, Abby's dad. And That's our awesome. guest today was Jeff Messer. Thanks, Jeff. Thank High you. Five.